Hello, I'm Poppy Garraway, one of the content strategists here at Elsevier, and I'm delighted to be joined again by Simon Robinson and Owen Doody, the authors of Nursing and Healthcare Ethics, for part two of our podcast on the ethics of the coronavirus pandemic. Care home residents in the UK have not had access to their families for over a year. Whilst this protects them from coronavirus, is it ethical to deny elderly people access to their loved ones, even in these extreme conditions? The situation with nursing homes and restricting visitor access, including families, is a very emotive decision. Uh, We're all very conscious of the fact that we need to protect the old person and that their vulnerability would probably result if they did come in contact with COVID in possible. So there is a, a balancing act that has to occur, but we're also conscious in that balancing act that, you know, the duration of this COVID pandemic for someone at the latter end of their life, you know, restricting visibility may mean that they may pass without having seen the, their family or in the presence of their family. And that's also denying a right of the family to be present with a person, their, their loved one when they're passing. So it is a very, very difficult decision to navigate for the decision makers. And I suppose what's guiding their decision and what guided their decision is the protection of life. I suppose we all fundamentally value life. And if we value life, we look at decision and we have to judge it in that context. I suppose what affects people's wavering of the context and the decision was the longevity. And, you know, that sounded okay, you know, that we restrict visitors and for the older person in the nursing homes, thinking that it'd be a six week or a 10 week or whatever period of time. But it wasn't. Six weeks turned to six months, turned to 12 months, turned to 18 months very quickly. And now there was innovations, you know, in relation to non-physical contact, people coming and then, you know, being able to talk through a closed window, but you also the physical, you know, with the plastic and the glove system at doorway that you could and actually come and hug a, a family member. There was very creative and then there was the use of technology, the Zoom and um, Teams and all that. That, again, is very, that is limited. You know, even the virtual, you can say, you can, you know, I suppose the younger people think the virtual world is there for everyone. You know, accessibility, familiarity, the use and the support to use technology for some of the older people may have been an issue. And and sometimes if you're at the end of your life and you can't have physical contact and Zoom could just reinforce the loneliness as well and um, the isolation. So it is a difficulty and I suppose the difficulty was around the decision, but also then for the people in those care environments supporting the older person. I suppose we've, a lot of people focus on the acute care hospital and the demands that were there and the decisions that were made there. But I suppose, and we just talked earlier on about the needs and the emotional aspect and the exhaustion and the support for staff. Nursing homes probably, you know, would be pushed to one side because they're not considered as traumatic in the experience, but I probably would argue that they were as much, you know, staff working in nursing homes or long-term care centres or disability centres, you know, have a good relationship, a very good relationship, uh, a personal and a therapeutic relationship with the person within their care. They know their family, they know the grand 
children, they have those conversations with them every day to keep that emotional well-being going in the absence of a visit, problem at the weekend. But that weekend was never coming. And if that person passed you know, that staff and that carer is left with that emotional burden as well. There has to be, and I think though some places are looking at it in relation to some sort of a, an annual memorial for the people that passed during COVID to bring all the families that had a loss. But that loss process is actually the loss that family and staff felt together and sharing that loss as a unity. So as we come out of the pandemic, I'd be hoping that that could be addressed and supported and acknowledged and it's be acknowledged by whoever the leaders and managers are within, be it a private or a public uh, nursing home. So their responsibility in this, because once COVID is over, their responsibility will be going back to normal and pushing and driving their, their service and managing and leading it and forgetting COVID in a way. I, I think that yeah, I think that's a really, really important, important point. I, I would only add two things. One is the, the term moral imagination. You've hinted there on the way in which people were beginning to innovate. They were beginning to think about different ways in which the core, the, the, the core things, both respect for the autonomy of the elderly patient but also the question of justice and care and protection, um, uh, how we could begin to balance those. Uh, more imagination is this idea that, again, that, that, that we're focusing on possibilities. One of the problems, it seems to me, of, health, of, 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 the, of the care of the elderly, elderly care homes uh, in the pandemic, has been that, that, that we've, we've tended not to think of the elderly as... Uh, autonomous. They're people who we protect. You stay in the corner and we'll protect you. And this will protect others as well and so forth and so on. And we've not included them for, for, uh, for, for a greater part in the exercise of moral imagination. I remember doing a session with some, some, uh, some care homes in Australia and all the professionals were, were, were talking about all kinds of things. Uh, and we all felt very, very good about it. And then at the end of the whole session, uh, uh, an older guy stood up, and he he was he was one of the older he he, he was part of a uh, a local elderly community, and he said, "In all of this, you've forgotten the resource of the older persons themselves, and how they might begin to respond to each other and fill in any of the kind of vacuums that are that are there." That's another part of reviewing and thinking about how we can begin to respond to this kind of pandemic crisis. And in the chapter on public health, you discuss rationing of resources. We have seen this both in the UK with the lack of PPE for health healthcare professionals and now in India where the terrible situation there is leading to the rationing of oxygen. How can decisions about rationing be made ethically? It, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting and difficult thing, that. Uh, and I think we've, we've argued that the first thing is to be clear that rationing happens. <laughs> it's not something that, that suddenly has come in uh, or suddenly appears in moments of crisis. It always happens at various levels, uh, political, social, community, organisational. We have to deal with limited resources and we cannot provide health care which is there for everybody at the same level in the same way all the time. 
full stop. So the key thing is then being able to talk about that rationing. It brings us right back to ethics, which is about dialogue. Ethics, which, which, which is not about raising false ethical perspectives. One of the problems of, of raising false ethical perspectives is that, is that we end up saying, well, okay, we'll ration this particular area. So we won't give that particular area, or we'll give something, we'll give it to the younger people, not the older people. After all, it's obvious, isn't it? You know, old people only have a few a few years left, um, et cetera, et cetera. And very quickly, we lose that humanity that we've been talking about. Very quickly, we, we, we lose that sense of the fact that we're talking about you and me and your mother and your father and so forth and so on. At the heart of that rationing has got to be public conversation about what it involves and about how professionals can begin to respond. I don't think there is any straightforward response. Yes, we talk about assessing areas which are critical and those which, which are not. Yes, we talk about, about consequences and so forth and so on. Uh, but at the heart of it, there needs to be a real public conversation because any rationing means that some may not get a care which they feel that they ought to have. And so we need to have a conversation about, about how we deal with that kind of limitation. And part of it is, is about how we deal with the limitations of being human. We can't answer everyone's care needs, uh, everyone's concerns and so forth. But to, to begin to get an ethical perspective, we need to have the big conversation about that and need to accept that actually rationing is part of our practice. Yeah, I'd agree, Simon. Um, I think um, what you said there is a reality. There, you're never going to have an infinite supply of anything. And I suppose from an ethical perspective, I, I just think and add in relation to, I see you know, my own background with, in relation to disability. You mean once the decisions are are just and fair, non-discriminatory and have an equal value on all people that I can accept that rationing is there. And like in a, even in a non-pandemic situation, there's rationing there. You, you have a unit, you have a, a number of patients in your care, you're down on staff or someone, someone goes out sick uh, that has turned up for work. You know, the key, key components of care, compassion and commitment, you can't uh, deliver the same volume with less resources. Um, so, you know, there are rationalization of be it time, be it resources or be it time that you can spend with a patient to show your compassion and empathy and listening and being with the person. If you're down, staff or staff have moved, you know, or on that particular day, there's a number of patients in crisis. Well, then you have to distribute and you can only deliver so much. So there always is a rationalization and it goes on need and a prioritization of need. And that would be the key principle driver. And as I said, that that prioritization of need is based on a just non-discriminatory and an equal value for all people. Okay, so last question. In the chapter on public health, you also cover private companies and their involvement in the NHS. I'm interested to know what you think about the use of private companies during the pandemic and the securing of large multi-million pound contracts without following proper process. Did the extreme situation of the pandemic justify these contracts if it allowed the government to secure PPE for healthcare workers? That's a really interesting question. I want to observe uh, two things. One is that 
pandemic and any pandemic that occurs it is for some people who are not very nice an opportunity to make money and sometimes to make it illegally you see that right across the piece you know from the, the bloke who was who was caught trying to give a, a vaccination to an elderly lady and and uh, 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 and making a hundred pound per vac per vac vaccination. <laughs> there was no there was no vaccine. But the the point is, and this is the second point, we should never underestimate at any level the capacity for corruption. If you look at uh, higher education and medicine globally, there is massive corruption going going on. It's it's quite clear there. Therefore. The argument would be that you have to be transparent, whatever the situation. Transparency and openness is part of the integrity of healthcare uh, practice and healthcare management. If we haven't got that, it's you begin to question about how far we can trust those who are who are who are in these issues. And very quickly, you know, we begin to move into, you know, was this an old mate of the of the, of a particular politician and so forth. And 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 that tells you that again there's a false dichotomy which is being raised. D dear old Boris raised it on a couple of occasions. I'm not knocking him, you know, but this is just an example of a false dichotomy where he was saying we had to choose between saving people's lives and uh, going through long uh, processes of, of transparency. That's a false dichotomy. You can very quickly ensure that you have good transparency, honest open openness in, in terms of how you acquire these things. You don't have to have that kind of, of, of dichotomy. So yes, I think, it, I think it's, it's, it's uh, uh, um, that in itself comes back to questions of justice, fairness, and ensuring that, that, that the proper regulation is maintained, whatever the situation. From an Irish perspective, I suppose, you know, we're a small nation and we were reliant a lot on international supply and ordering internationally. So our response for, at a governmental level would have been that, you know, there's many small individual private businesses and industries out there. You know, if they were able to produce PPE, they 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 offered contracts with them. So I suppose yeah, there was an, there was an awful lot of companies that did supply. But uh, I suppose it probably was a little bit more open and transparent because we're a smaller nation. They were smaller contracts, you know what I mean? Because they would only small companies be able to produce X amount, but they knew they would need them. So they, they took on the contracts for six months or a year or whatever. And I suppose, you know, there was a knock on, you know, yes, you know, as Simon alluded to, it is an opportunity for business and business is open for uh, People uh, during a COVID uh, pandemic that are in the, in the business of making and supplying PPE equipment or ventilators or oxygen tanks or whatever. So, you know, their, their focus is on business sustainability, business growth, business development and business profit. And I suppose it is the balancing of that. And I suppose, you know, nationally as government, you know, government spending of money 
needs to be open and transparent because it comes from our taxes and that needs to be fundamental in there that you know that we that there is a visibility and an openness and transparency of what contracts were awarded how much was it in favor of any particular group or particular individual or connection or association with a party they're all fundamental things that can be investigated and I know good reporters in in countries would look under good freedom information acts for this as the time goes on so I'm sure any snakes in the closet they'll come out over time but I think you know from as I said from an Irish point we're smaller there were smaller companies uh, and many of them brought in to supply the PPE that had a knock on a benefit and effect in relation to produce the uh, growing of employment so most of the companies that took on had to take on a so, so you mean it's balancing the overall argument, as we said earlier, Mr. Simon, that there is no um, right or wrong, yes or no, definitive in ethics. It's about the conversation. It's about the uh, the visibility and the transparency of the decisions uh, that are made and how you come to. And I think that's talk about that from a professional perspective but that's also from a political perspective as well and that you know they are leaders are national leaders and if they can show the principles <laughs> uh, for for country <laughs> governments where we we do have a, a broader discussion and um, beyond yeah. correct but it's, to get but into, I mean, <laughs> that's a terrific point uh, because it's it's very different very difficult to constrain this conversation about ethics we'll constrain it to the nurses over there in that corner or to the leaders over here in that corner or to the managers of the of the trust or, or chair of the trust or whatever over in that corner and to the uh, to, to the local authority over there and to the politician the national politicians over over there they're all part of this ethical this ethical conversation and and therefore I would I would also suggest that nurses and the nursing profession have a great right a tremendous right uh, and indeed an obligation to get involved in that kind of conversation with the politicians with the managers the critical test of transparency is when you involve other stakeholders in the conversation because once you're in conversation, you've got to give an account. You've got to give an account <laughs> in the headlights, and you've got to justify what you've done. There are certain politicians who try, to, and sometimes successfully, to get out of that by changing the subject or what or whatever. But a real dialogue uh, enables us to stay focused on what the key practices and what the key values are and what the key principles are and what the key objectives and vision of the of the of the whole project is, now, and, and and that's that's where the real ethical project, the, the real ethical uh, creative response comes from. Yeah, I think you know, just reiterating what you said, Simon. There, that the whole thing is the inclusive dialogue. Thank you so much for your contributions today, Simon and Owen. If you are enjoying this Author Talks podcast and want to hear more from our authors, please do go ahead and subscribe.